And now hear God's holy word from Mark chapter 2. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoned in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed and went out in the presence of all of them so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we thank you and we praise you for Jesus. We thank you that you have shown yourself to be a God who pursues communion with your, create, uh, with your created beings. You, you pursue communion with us and you've demonstrated this through Jesus who came to forgive us, to absorb the cost of our sins, our rebellion against you. And so, Father, in praising you for Jesus today, as we reflect on these things, cause our hearts to turn toward you in worship and gratitude. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Several days ago, I set up to work at a coffee shop as I'll do once or twice a week. I'll use their Wi-Fi to answer emails and I'll sit and return some phone calls and get caught up on a few things. And as I was sitting at this coffee shop, a uh, couple of pastors came in. I recognized one of them, uh, a local pastor, and he and his other pastor friend from another church sat at a, another table in the coffee shop and they were discussing loud enough for me to hear uh, about how their churches support local missions and how they're doing international missions and, and what they've got going on in their respective congregations. As, as they were carrying on that conversation, I could also notice across the room there were two young men who had their Bibles out and they were loudly conversing about God's law, sometimes disagreeing, but it was all cordial, but they were reading through the Ten Commandments out loud, loud enough for me to hear them across the room kind of wish they would have piped down so I could get some work done, but I could hear them talking about God's law in this coffee shop and enjoying their conversation together. Then a few minutes later, I'm not making this up, uh, a few minutes later, this young family came in with their small children and as they uh, unwrapped their bagels and they got their coffee out, they gave thanks to God and they, they said grace before they ate their bagels. All of this while Nat King Cole was singing over the speakers in the coffee shop, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Now, we could have had some kind of revival or some kind of uh, church meeting right there. I'm not saying that the kingdom of heaven has been fully realized on earth. I'm not saying that. But it is undeniable 
that we live in a culture that has been radically altered and impacted by the gospel. Evidences of this abound. Now, I know my experience is unique to America. You wouldn't see this in most other Western countries today. And it's especially unique to the Southern states where Christians aren't quite as outnumbered as they are in other parts of the country. Still, every once in a while, you get struck with this realization that there are billions of people in the world who all at some level confess that Jesus is Lord. They confess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's good to remember that, especially as you walk around this season and you're, you're hearing the hymns and the carols along with, you know, the, the other not so great, you know, uh, songs that, that get attached to the season. You still hear the message of the gospel and the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ still breaks through. You hear that. And it's good to remember this because we are, are apt to get very gloomy. We start to think that maybe we're the only ones left in the world who really believe that uh, the gospel is true. We're the only ones left who really care what God says. So occasionally it's good to get these reminders that, yeah, hey, wait, wait a minute, there is all kinds of really bad, gross wickedness in the world. And yeah, there's, there's all kinds of darkness in the world as well. But Jesus is still reigning and the world is a different place because of his birth, his death, his resurrection, his ascension as king over all things. The church is very much alive and the church is very much present in the world. Now granting this and acknowledging that Jesus has changed history to the point where you can sit in a coffee shop and gospel is breaking out everywhere. Acknowledging that Jesus has changed the world forever. What would you say is the most important contribution that Jesus and his church have made to the world? What does Jesus offer the world through his church that you can't get anywhere else? Now, some people may say, well, the church and, and the Christian message gives us a, an ethic. It gives us a coherent sense of right and wrong, a, 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 a unique morality that you can't find anywhere else. Some others may say, well, Jesus through the church teaches the world how to love and demonstrates that love in a sacrificial way, in a very distinct way. You may say the church gives us a, a developed sense of manhood and womanhood, what it means to be a, a human in, in this world, how, how to understand ourselves, our roles and our callings and our responsibilities as people and families. Or you might say, well, what the church gives us and what the Christian message gives us is fulfillment or a sense of purpose or a sense of happiness or hope. That's the main mission of the church, to give people this really good feeling that they wouldn't get anywhere else. Well, at, at various levels, all of this is true. It really is true that Jesus through the church offers these things, but there's one contribution that supersedes all others. And in fact, while other world philosophies offer their own ethic, they offer their own demonstrations of love, they offer their own definitions of our responsibilities and roles in the world, they provide their own sense of purpose. There's one thing that Jesus provides for the world that no one else and nothing else does or can provide. No one else has the power to give it. Nobody else even acknowledges that we really need it. That one thing that the church gives the world that we've been given by Jesus, the one extension, the one unique thing we offer is forgiveness. You, you can't find that anywhere else. It's our greatest need as well. 
without forgiveness for the immense debt of sin that we have all incurred, we are bound for an eternity of separation from God, our creator. We are bound for an eternity of torment and loneliness in hell. Sin, our sin, not, not God's the fact that he's got too high of a standard and he really shouldn't, you know, uh, enforce his standards on us that we, 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 we think is carnal, you know, uh, 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 sinful uh, creatures when we think that way. No, it's, it's actually our responsibility, our sin. Our sin leaves us cut off from God, our creator. Our sin leaves us out of fellowship, out of communion, not only for this life, but for eternity. There is no hope for us in our sinful state apart from Jesus. Not only are we out of communion, not only are we out of fellowship, but we are dead and can't do anything to change it. We can't do anything to fix it. We have no ability to do anything about it. So we're hopeless apart from Jesus. Now, now this thing that I've just articulated, our distance from God and our need to cross that distance um, and to have life in him and the need for forgiveness, who else who else recognizes this? What other world religion or whatever, whatever other philosophy sees this? Much less, who else has a solution to it? Our greatest problem is sin, and our greatest need is the forgiveness of sin. We have no way to deal with it by ourselves. Only Jesus offers the kind of forgiveness that we need. Only by union with Jesus, through faith in him, repenting of our sin, can we be forgiven of that sin. That, that forgiveness that I'm talking about means that, that I'm released from the penalty of paying the debt that I owe. And not only am I released from the penalty, but God isn't going to hang it over my head. Instead, he's nailed it to the cross with Jesus. Now, now that ultimately, ultimately is the message that's unique to the church. It's unique to the Christian gospel. It's a distinctive feature of the Christian message. And it is the primary principal contribution of the church to the world. The Christian message is this, to summarize, we know what your greatest problem is. Your problem isn't economic. Your problem isn't political. Your problem isn't educational. Your problem isn't biological. Your problem isn't psychological. Not, not your greatest problem, not your greatest need. Your greatest issue, what keeps you anxious and depressed and hurting and despairing is that you are a sinner justly deserving of God's wrath and without hope apart from his mercy. And that's what we offer. We know that. We've got that, we've got that cued in. Now, not only do we know that, but we know Jesus and we know how to get those sins forgiven. And we know how to get you back into union with your creator. Now, so this, this vocabulary of sin and forgiveness, this, this means of getting back into union with God is the fountain out of which flows all kinds of other things. All those other things I listed, a coherent ethic, a sacrificial love, uh, uh, the definitions of what it means to be human. All this has changed the world. This is what has changed the lives of everyone who knows what it means to be a Christian and walk with Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. That the God of creation, the God revealed to us in the Bible, is the God who shows himself willing to forgive, eager to forgive, whose character defines compassion, kindness, love, mercy. The God who pursues his creatures with that forgiveness and would rather deliver sinners than punish them. And people all throughout history 
and all of the world, all over the world have been, have been transformed by this forgiveness that God has granted through Jesus. These truths have changed the world and they'll continue to. Now, if you can, try to just separate yourself for just a moment. Just imagine what it's like to not have this vocabulary, to not live in this economy of forgiveness, of having been forgiven by Jesus and to walk in that forgiveness, divorce yourself from that for just a moment, and try to imagine how radical and revolutionary these things are. I, I, I'm, I'm not even sure that I can really do it, but to, 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 try to, to try to divorce yourself and think, what would it be like not to live in this economy of forgiveness? Uh, you and I are familiar with it because we've experienced it, but you, you, you see this uh, if you've ever asked forgiveness of an unbeliever. If you've ever done something at work that you're ashamed of and uh, something you feel bad about or something that you just, you just really messed up. And you go to an unbeliever and you say, boy, look, I need to, I need to fess up. I really messed up. I, I need your forgiveness because I made your job harder because of what I did wrong. Have you ever tried to confess your sins to an unbeliever? Have you ever tried to ask for forgiveness? They don't know what to say. They don't know what to do with it. We're like, what is this? This is weird. Are you okay? Do I need to call help? You know, have you ever had someone say in maybe a glib way, uh, because you'll hear this, we use the words, I'm sorry, or I apologize all the time when people feel bad about things. But have you, have you heard somebody glibly say, well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if that hurt you. I'm sorry if that offended you. And you say to them, you stop and you say, you know what? Uh, I'm, I'm glad that you're sorry and, and I forgive you. I forgive you and I release all you know, future uh, uh, claim to being hurt or being offended. I appreciate that. I forgive you. Like, what, what, are you what are you doing? That's weird. Uh, wh why, why, why are you talking this way? You see, this notion of forgiveness is strange. It's alien. It's outside of the, the, the common experience of people who don't know the forgiveness of Jesus. This, this however, economy of forgiveness, if we can step back inside our own heads now um, for, for a moment, this notion of forgiveness as a real thing, as a real transaction, uh, forgiveness is not simply a sentiment. Forgiveness uh, needs to be sought and granted. That, that's, that's just not something that normally gets reinforced in our society outside of interactions between Christians. Apart from living the gospel, uh, we, we tend to deal with offenses in other ways. We come up with other creative ways that aren't forgiveness. We consume years of our lives in tit-for-tat battles. We catalog offenses. We never recognize our own faults. We always look for the last word. And, and in our most immature state, not only do we look for the last word, but, but we try to come up with the most clever insult, you know, the most clever, or as the young people say, the sickest burn. Or maybe they said that 10 years ago and I didn't know about it and, and they don't say it anymore. Do you still say that, the sickest burn? We said that. You come up with the most awful insult that you can think of and that's how you deal with offense. That's how you deal with um, with, with, with strained relationships. The best that we can hope for, apart from forgiveness, the best that we can hope for when there's a real offense is maybe just to get to a point where you stop thinking about it and you don't talk about what's bothering you. You ignore it. Or maybe you just cut the offending person out of your life forever. But nothing is resolved and nothing is ever restored. 
outside of the forgiveness that Jesus has offered his people and the forgiveness that we exercise with each other, outside of that, asking for forgiveness is scary. It implies weakness. It, it, it implies that we're uh, somehow um, less than almighty. And, and granting forgiveness to others, that's giving up my right to be offended. That's giving up my right to revenge. Who wants anything to do with that? Well, we, we all have this built-in carnal fleshly opposition to the economy of forgiveness. And yet it's that opposition to forgiveness is, that's what keeps us miserable. That keeps us hopeless. It keeps us lost. God the Father sends his son Jesus to forgive. And not to simply forgive, you know, fuzzy misunderstandings or I'm sorry if I, I did something, but to forgive real sins and to really and truly forgive them. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, whose name Jesus, because his name means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves us from what? Well, we read, he came to save his people from their sins. All of Christmas is about the fact that we're sinners in need of a savior. We, we can't lose that core message. And here we are in the season of Advent where now we're still considering and reflecting on all the ways that Jesus comes to us. He has come, he is coming, he will come again. And we're looking at through the season of Advent, what does he do when he comes? The last time, last time we were together, we saw when he visits, when he draws near, on the day of the Lord, sometimes he wrestles with us. Often he wrestles with us. And we looked at what that means. This week I want to look at, well, when he comes near, he comes to forgive. I read just a few minutes ago from Mark chapter 2. Jesus comes to Capernaum to teach. This is where Peter is from. So Jesus may be set up at Peter's house in this section of the gospel. It's still very early when he's still gathering his disciples and he knows Peter and Peter lives there. So he might be teaching at Peter's house. Word gets out that Jesus is in town and he attracts such a large crowd that the house can't contain him. They're spilling out into the street all over the place. And you know what happens next. Four men who had a paralyzed friend were so determined to get to where Jesus was that they weren't turned away by the sight of the crowd. They see the crowd. You know, if I see a line anywhere, I'm like, I'm not going here. I don't like lines. I don't like standing in lines. I don't, I don't want to be around large crowds, but they were not deterred. They said, there's a large crowd there, but we have a need and we're going to get our friend in front of Jesus. They went up to the roof and they made a hole in the roof so that they could lower their friend down through the hole. Now, I've often in the past pictured this house as maybe, you know, it had a, as like a mud hut or something. It had some straw in the roof and, and all they had to do was, you know, just clear away some straw and debris and lower their friend down. But if this was Peter's house, you know, Peter might have been a very wealthy businessman. You know, he has a business. His family has a business um, of fishing. Uh, this house very well could have been far sturdier construction and tearing through the roof would have been a real big job. It could have been a real big demolition job. You see, it was common for people in the ancient world to use their roofs as you or I would use our back deck or our patio or our front porch. They would uh, rest there. Sometimes they would put um, a, a, a awning over it with, with poles and they would sit out there in the afternoon and enjoy the cool breeze. They would eat out there. Sometimes in the summer, if it got too hot in the house, they would even sleep out there. So these, these roofs had to be pretty sturdy. It had to bear some weight. 
And so uh, these four men would have had to hack through plaster and wood, perhaps, to make a hole big enough to put a man on a cot through that hole. So, so it's no small job. And, and again, it's always funny to me to imagine what it must have been like for Jesus, you know, sitting in the parlor, in the room, with everybody on the floor, sitting wherever they can, crammed in the corners, you know, spilling out, looking in through the windows, looking in through the door, and Jesus sitting there teaching while they hear some hubbub on the roof, and then they hear this hacking and hammering and pounding, and then debris and, and sand and sawdust starts falling on everybody's heads. And I'm like, what, what's, what is going on here? As now there's a new sunlight, there's a new skylight in the roof. And this man is being lowered down in the middle of this crowd. Now he's paralyzed, so he's looking at them and they're looking up at him like, where are you coming from? And now this man sits down in front of Jesus. He's set, set in front of Jesus by by his friends. When everything settles down, as you can imagine, this would have been a really funny, humorous kind of scene. After everything settles down, Jesus looks at them and speaks. And Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. There's a great lesson in here about Jesus blessing the man on the bed. See, he looks at his friend's faith and he forgives the man's sins. A great lesson about blessing the man based not only on his own need, but blessing him based on his friend's faithfulness. See, all of us, every single one of us are carried to Jesus by somebody else. We're all carried to Jesus by other people, either our parents or other people who discipled us, other people who loved us enough to tell us about Jesus. Nobody comes to Jesus all by themselves. We are always saved in community. We're always forgiven in community. Just like this man was helpless when it came to getting to Jesus, none of us come to Jesus unless somebody somehow carries us. And we need the kinds of friends who will carry us to Jesus instead of away from him. We need the kind of friends who will, who will uh, bring us to him when we need it. And we also need to be those kinds of friends who will bring our friends to Jesus. Now, that's a great lesson in there, but the main point is what happens next. Jesus didn't say, be healed, get up and walk. Jesus said to this man, your sins are forgiven. Because that was the man's greatest need. We look at a paralyzed man and we say his greatest need is to be able to walk. His greatest need is to be able to dress himself, to be able to feed himself. He needs to go get a job. That's his greatest need. But Jesus knows, you know, he could walk, but he could walk straight to hell if he's not forgiven. His greatest need is to be forgiven. Well, when Jesus says this, there are those in the audience who instantly think this is blasphemous. This is, this is awful. This is terrible. This is bad theology. And after, after Jesus notices this little clamor and this little side discussion, he says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. I don't want you to miss that. I'm I'm the son of man and I have power on earth to forgive sins. What is so shocking to these people about Jesus forgiving this man's sin? Why is, there, why is there this little hubbub? Well, in order to understand this, we need to think like a first century Jew. In the first century or in, in Judaism, who has the power to forgive sins? How do you get your sins forgiven? How does this take place? Well, they were of the mind that only God 
can really forgive sins. And that forgiveness can only be found in the sacrificial system of the temple. So for Jesus to be taking it upon himself to forgive sins, that means that he's setting aside the whole matter of animal sacrifice. He's setting aside the priest and the whole system of the temple. He's taking on himself, they believe, what only God can do. Well, well, yes, in fact, he is. And that's shocking, but that's the very point, isn't it? Because he is God, because he is the Son of Man, he can do this. He's allowed to. But there's another layer to this as well. There's a freshness to this concept. Where in the Old Testament do you read about forgiveness between people? Well, Joseph forgives his brothers. Uh, Abigail uh, calls on David to forgive her foolish husband, Nabal. You do see it. But the issue of forgiveness between men is not underscored very often in the Old Testament. Now, what do we get in God's law? We get lots of information, helpful instruction on restitution. If you break a contract or you defraud someone, you have to pay back the man that you defrauded plus one-fifth. You've got to leave him in a better position than he was uh, when you stole from him. If you steal an ox and if you kill it and eat it, you have to pay back five head of oxen. This is critical instruction and we need this. You pay back the man that you stole from. You don't pay back society. You don't pay back the government. You pay back the one that you defrauded. Now, now I would argue that there is no way that forgiveness makes sense apart from the ethic of the Old Testament regarding restitution. There's no, there's no, there's no universe where forgiveness makes sense if we don't understand that offenses create debt, that offenses create and cause damage, real tangible damage. Forgiveness doesn't make sense apart from that understanding. We're going to build on that because forgiveness cancels a debt. So we don't, we don't, if we don't recognize that offense incurs a debt that must be dealt with, then forgiveness is nonsense. Forgiveness is just a sentiment if there's no debt incurred. So this understanding that the Old Testament gives us, God's law helps us to understand that restitution in these matters is vital. But when you get to the New Testament, we build on that because over and over in the epistles, Christians are encouraged to forgive each other. Yes, in fact, there is a real debt that has been caused by this offense, but I want you to absorb it. I want you to take this debt upon yourself. Ephesians 4, 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3, 13, bear with one another, forgive one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so also you must do. Not do it if you feel like it, not do it if you're in the mood. You must do this. Galatians 6.1, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, bear one another's burdens. When Paul writes to the Corinthians and they're all suing each other, they're taking each other to court, the Roman courts, Paul introduces an alternative idea. He says, you know what? If you can't work it out in the church, if you can't do this in the church courts, wouldn't it be much better just to let it go? He says, why not rather accept wrong or allow yourself to be cheated? In other words, Forgive the offense rather than pressing your rights. That also is an option for you. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, he included this phrase, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
The lesson being, we had better be people who freely exercise forgiveness with men if we expect any from God. In the Old Covenant, we have this emphasis on God forgiving men, but now in the New Covenant, we add to that this importance of brother forgiving brother. The, the concept of brotherly forgiveness is elevated. So when Jesus draws near, he brings with him this ministry of reconciliation, bringing together God and man, bringing together brother and brother, bringing together Jew and Gentile, husband and wife, father and son, tearing down uh, barriers and building bridges so that now just as Jesus and his father are one, now his people can be one. This, this kind of unity can only be created. It can only be found where there is forgiveness and only Jesus brings this kind of forgiveness. Now in this event in Mark chapter 2, very early in his ministry, Jesus is pouring the foundation. He's bringing with him this kind of forgiveness. He's exemplifying it. He's demonstrating it. And in answering his critics here, for the first time in Mark's gospel, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. This is his preferred title for himself. If he came around calling himself Messiah, there would have been people who attach all kinds of political meanings to that. But he comes calling himself the Son of Man, which is a royal title. And as he says, you know, this, this is why I have the authority to forgive sins. I am, I am the son of man. I am the king. To say he's the son of man means he's the son of the man. He is the king. He's the true heir to the throne. He's the true son of David. He's the fulfillment of God's promises to David that his son would sit on an eternal throne. And those who are paying attention know exactly what he's saying here. Those who know their Bibles know what he's talking about. And the Son of Man, he says, has power on earth to forgive sins. The king rules. That's the point. The king can release people from their debts. And because we are his people, and because he is our head and we are his body, now we also have the power and the authority on earth to forgive sins among us as well. We can forgive each other the sins that are committed toward us. As, as Christ's representatives on earth, we communicate God's forgiveness to people when they repent. When someone comes to faith and repents of their sins, we can say with all boldness, God forgives you. We don't have to, we don't have to apologize. We don't have to shy away from that. We can say, you know what? God, in fact, forgives you. When your children sin and need forgiveness, we forgive them and we say, you know what? If you confess your sins to God, he forgives you too. Indeed, in fact, he forgives you. Now lift up your head and live confidently in Jesus. And when we repent of our sins together in worship, and when the pastor pronounces the forgiveness of sins to us, you know, every Lord say, I'm not overstepping my bounds when I say your sins are forgiven. I'm not, I'm not taking on a role that, that hasn't been given to me. I can say with all confidence, you, if you've confessed your sins in sincerity, I know that you are forgiven because God is faithful to his promises. This, this ministry of reconciliation has been initiated by Jesus. He has forgiven us. He has worked out our forgiveness. Now we are emissaries of his forgiveness to the world. I want to jump over to 2 Corinthians 5 and just a short part here. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. I know it's familiar to you, but I want to read it out loud. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if you're trying to get there, I'll give you just a second. You know this part. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You know that part. But keep reading. 
Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God pleads through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We are his emissaries. We are his ambassadors. We are his ministers of reconciliation. We who have been forgiven, we master the economy of forgiveness. We master the vocabulary and we exercise it freely with each other. We define forgiveness this way. And I'll uh, give you three points that helps us case and understand this, this economy of forgiveness that I'm speaking of. This is how we define forgiveness. First of all, forgiveness cancels a debt. When there is offense, a debt has incurred. That's what we learn in the Old Testament. That's what we learn in the laws of restitution. When there is an offense, a debt has been incurred. If I pull out of the parking lot in a few minutes and I'm not looking and I back into your fender and dent in your quarter panel, I, through my foolishness and my lack of attention, I have incurred a debt. Your vehicle has now been diminished in its attractiveness, in its value. If you try to sell it, people are going to say, there's a dent there. What are you going to give me for that? If, uh, if you enjoy your car and how it looks, I've diminished your enjoyment in the car. A real debt has been incurred. Uh, someone's going to have to pay to fix it. Someone's going to have to do something. Now, you can insist that I pay for all of it, and that's within your rights to do so, because it was 100% my fault. You can insist that I pay for it. Or you can say, well, you know what? If you'll just cover my deductible, I'll get my insurance to cover it, so I can pay for part of it. Or you can say, I'll take care of it myself. But here's what we can't do. We, we can work this out a number of different ways, but here's what we can't do. We can't pretend that it's not broken. We can't pretend that the fender's not dented. Saying, I forgive you, doesn't fix the fender. And it's not somehow more spiritual to pretend it isn't broken. It's not somehow more pious to say, oh, it's not really dented. It's not really scratched. It's actually pretty beautiful. That's, that's not more spiritual. Forgiveness, then, doesn't mean that we fake peace. Someone has to absorb the cost. If you say, I forgive you, I don't want anything from you, that means you have absorbed the cost. If I can't pay, or if you don't want me to pay, you can absorb the cost and you can cancel my debt, and that is well within your rights. But forgiveness always acknowledges a debt. I saw something in the news this week about a move to cancel or to free student loan debt, um, as if by just a stroke of a pen, the debt goes away. The debt doesn't go away. Somebody has to pay the cost for it. Somebody, when you talk about uh, forgiving third world debt, which, which may be uh, necessary at some way, there may need to be a year of jubilee or whatever, but we understand that you don't just make debt go away, somebody absorbs it. Somebody has to pay it. Somebody has to take over the cost. Debt 
uh, has to be for, has to be paid. Somebody has to pay it. Now, we owe God such a massive debt of guilt that we will never be able to repay it. And when we repent and we put our faith in Jesus to forgive us, God cancels our debt, but he doesn't do it by pretending that we don't have a debt. He doesn't do it by pretending that we never did anything wrong. When he cancels our debt, he puts it on Jesus' shoulders. It has been absorbed by Jesus when we're forgiven. Jesus is the one who takes the debt on himself. He has the power to forgive sin, he says. So, so think back to that house where Jesus is teaching. Everybody's grumbling among themselves, saying, how can he do this? You know why I can do this? You know why I can forgive sins, Jesus could have said? Because I'm going to pay for them. I'm going to pay for every one of these sins. I'm going to pay for this man's sins. That's, that's why I can forgive him, because I'm the one paying for them. I'm the one paying for these sins. So uh, that's the first thing. Forgiveness cancels a debt, and that debt is real. It's not imaginary. It's real, and it has to be paid. And when we're forgiven, Jesus has paid that debt. Secondly, forgiveness not only cancels the debt, but it also cancels any right to future recourse. So if I forgive you for something, I'm not going to come back and make you pay for it later. I'm not going to bring up the offense again. I'm not going to tell everyone how terrible you are or gossip about you. I'm not going to tear down your reputation. I'm not going to dwell on it and become bitter about it if I have really forgiven you. See, when God cancels a debt, he doesn't brood on it. He doesn't pull it up later and get mad all over again. Though we often do that, don't we? We will tell somebody, oh, I forgive you. And then a week later, we'll be just driving and we'll, our, our thoughts will be roaming. And then we just get angry all over again. No, you didn't really forgive. And you need to start now. You need to really forgive. Isaiah 38 says, But you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. You threw it behind your back. You don't, you don't bring it up anymore. Psalm 103, As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As we've seen in our studies in David's life, Sin almost always causes, it creates real repercussions in this life. And we have to deal with those consequences. And we have to deal with those temporal judgments. We're chastised and we're disciplined. To be forgiven by God doesn't mean that we get out of all the consequences. But it does mean that Jesus has taken in himself the eternal death penalty. He has absorbed the eternal judgment due our sin. And God chooses not to bring it up again. Thirdly, forgiveness is necessary for life. If you want to have life, you have to do two things. You have to recognize that you have really been forgiven. And you have to exercise this forgiveness with each other. This whole story is something of a resurrection scene. The man is lowered down into a hole as if he were dead. There he meets Jesus and he walks out on his feet. The forgiveness of sins resurrects us. The forgiveness of sins that Jesus grants us restores us. It gives us life. It's this forgiveness that gives life between us, between man and man, between God and man. It gives life. It gives us peace between us and God and between us and each other. It reverses the curse this way. It reverses the power of death and sin and hell. It all gets rolled back the dominion of, of sin and hell and death is broken where there is forgiveness. The old world, before the resurrection, was on a trajectory. 
in which everything gets worse and worse and worse, and you move farther and farther away from the garden, and you, you move farther out of fellowship with the Father. But the new world, after the resurrection of Jesus, moves back toward fellowship with the Father, and things are improving. This forgiveness is revolutionary in this way. It's, it's moving everything back the other direction, back toward communion with God. And this is why the world doesn't want it. It likes the trajectory of death. It likes the trajectory of wickedness and sin and separation. And so forgiveness is alien. It's, it cuts the wrong way. It moves in the wrong direction because it demands humility. It demands weakness. That's why we can't abide with it. Some folks can't abide with forgiveness and with this entire concept because they can't wrap their brain around the fact that there really is something so amazing as the fact that I can release you from your debt and you can release me from mine, and we can, leave, we, we can live together in peace. People stay at odds with each other for years and years because they cannot conceive of the fact that there is such a thing, and there's a capacity, and there's an ability to be forgiven and to forgive. Is that, is that you? Do, you? do you have that problem? Do you think that, that you really can't forgive somebody that is actually impossible? Are you really having trouble considering and conceiving of the fact that somebody who has forgiven you really and truly has forgiven you? you can you think that way? If, if that's an entirely alien, alien concept to you, then you don't believe that Jesus has the power on earth to forgive sins. You don't believe that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. If you, if you haven't exercised that and you don't believe that that really happens, you've got a problem with believing Jesus. The cynic says that the world doesn't work that way. That's not how things go. Some folks think that when it comes to their sin before God, whatever they've done is not forgivable. What, whatever I've done, there's no way that God's mercy can top that. I'm too big for God to handle. My sin is way bigger than his mercy. Well, then if that's what you're thinking, if there's some sin that you're so ashamed of that you think God can never forgive you, you don't believe that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And when we confess our faith in just a few minutes, don't read the Apostles' Creed. I just want you to stand up and shout, I don't believe that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, because that's what I believe, because that's how I live. I don't believe that he has the power. What, 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 what can I say to convince you that in fact, you, there's no way that you can sin in such a way that God's mercy is going to be outmatched, outstripped, outpaced by your sin? Or, or, or do you have this idea to, that, if, that if you rely on God's mercy, somehow that's a, that's a, that's a personal defect? I am better than that. I don't need a crutch. Re rejecting God's forgiveness in all these ways like this, it isn't pious, it isn't humble, it's foolish, and it's the way of death and hell. The Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, and that includes the sins that are on your heart and on your mind right now. That includes the issues and the conflicts and the difficulties that you are experiencing in relationships with other people right now. The things that are keeping your heart far from God and out of fellowship with God and out of tune with God, those sins can be forgiven by Jesus because He has the power on earth to forgive sins. I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> 
You can, co- you can commit those sins to Him. You can repent of them. You can confess them, and He will forgive you. If we want restoration, if we want healing, if we want things to work well and to get better rather than giving worse, we must receive the forgiveness of God and practice it with each other. Keep short accounts. Have a long-term memory for the good things. Quickly forget the bad things. Heading into Christmas and all the celebrations and gatherings and all the joy that attends everything that's coming may require you to initiate some forgiveness. It may require you to clear some things up and to cancel some old debts. Sin and offense greatly diminish joy. And so as people who belong to Jesus, we are peacemakers. We are the ministers of reconciliation. And so if you have accounts that you need to clear up with your wife, let's get it done before next week. If you have accounts you need to clear up with your husband or with your children or with your cousin across the country or with a parent or with somebody else in the church, if there are things you need to clear up as the people who belong to Jesus, that's that's who we are. We're the peacemakers. We show everyone how to live as men and women in, in a world where forgiveness is necessary. It must be sought. It must be given. It is essential for the life of the world. This is why we're all celebrating. This is why we can read the Bible out loud in a coffee shop. It's because we've been forgiven. That's why we're not ashamed. It's because we've been forgiven and we know that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He has drawn near to us. He has visited us with forgiveness. The Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Jesus is coming and he comes to forgive you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us this way in Jesus. We thank you that... In him, you have canceled our debt of sin, a debt that we could never, ever begin to repay because we're dead and we're distant and we're uh, wicked apart from you. And so, Father, we thank you for forgiving us in Jesus. Now make us capable and joyful ministers of reconciliation to each other and to the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.